Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I am your host, Andrew Ridgey, and this show is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We are the organization that's representing restaurant and nightlife establishments throughout the five boroughs of New York City, in the halls of government, in the media, and offering you the services you need to hopefully run a successful business here in the city of New York. I think that not enough of our policymakers and the broader public are really understanding the really daunting mix of trends and challenges that, that we're up against today. You know, automation is just one thing, but we've got to be investing in education and training and, and programs that give people pipelines into those new jobs where the economy is growing. Today, I am very excited for my guest, Mr. Jonathan Bowles. Jonathan is the executive director of the Center for an Urban Future, which is an independent, nonpartisan policy organization that is a catalyst for smart and sustainable policies that reduce inequality, increase economic mobility, and grow the economy here in New York City. Today, we're going to discuss the organization's mission and their work, such as their annual State of the Change report, their research on automation's impact on the workforce, tourism's role in this New York City economy, and more. Now, Center for an Urban Future, or CUF for short, is an amazing organization, one of my favorites. They're always putting out different reports, and I am very interested in all the work they're doing, and they are having an incredible impact on the city of New York and really helping to drive our policymakers and really New Yorkers as a whole to be the best city we can be. So after my conversation with Jonathan... I'm sure you'll understand why I'm so fond of what they're doing. So if you like this show, Hospitality and Politics, go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review, share it on social media. We are on Twitter at the NYC Alliance, as well as Instagram at the NYC Alliance. If you want to find us on Facebook and LinkedIn, just search New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I am on Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and on Instagram at PoliticalFoodieNYC. As always, this show is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. And if you want to learn how to get involved, support the organization, by all means, head to thenycalliance.org. I am here with Jonathan Bowles. How's it going? It's good. I am thrilled to have you on. And I know my colleague, Andres, has been saying, like, I can't wait for Jonathan to come on. He's been prepping. So we're, you know, thrilled, as I said. So appreciate you being here. Well, thanks for having me. So I guess first, let's start off. I know I did a little intro into Center of an Urban Future, but in your own words, can you explain what the organization does? What's your mission? Sure. Well, we're a think tank, uh, but unlike a lot of think tanks, we're focused exactly on New York. And, um, you know, we focus on growing the economy and expanding economic opportunity. We do it through data, through fact-based research. We try to shine a light on important issues facing our city. Uh, we try to shine a light on opportunities, uh, things that we should be doing better as a city. And we try to put out some smart, sustainable policies, not pie-in-the-sky ideas, but really achievable things that New York City policymakers can be doing better about. And so, you know, again, we really focus on how do you grow the economy? How do you create jobs? Uh, but also, how do you make sure more New Yorkers uh, from all backgrounds are able to get those jobs? So over the years, we've done studies about the creative industries, the tech sector. We've looked at the role of manufacturing in the economy. 
We've done studies recently about the tourism and its really outsized impact on the economy. But then on the other side, we've been writing about the community colleges in New York City. How do we get more people not only enrolled, but how do we get those that have enrolled to actually graduate uh, and raise those graduation rates at community colleges? We've written about workforce development programs, city libraries, uh, and um, and really looking at what are the various levers that we have as a city to uh, make sure more people get on the path to the middle class. Yeah, no, I love all your reports. I mentioned a few of them, and we'll definitely get into discussing some of them. I actually sent uh, the community college report to my wife. She teaches at Bronx Community College, huh. and Ken Adams is up there as well. And, you know, we've had discussions about, you know, business and all the different issues facing the city. And I'm a big believer in community colleges. Me and too. They're just such a good pipeline and uh, resource for New Yorkers. So, before we get into conversations, I'm always curious, like, I know the work that the organization does, but how did you get there into the executive director role? God, it seems so long ago. Uh, because, <laughs> how many years uh, has it I've been? been? I've been at the organization for uh, almost 21 years now. Wow. Um, but, um, but I actually came up to New York uh, to do an internship with Wayne Barrett of the Village Voice, kind of the wow. one of the best investigative reporters of all time in New York City. And I really cut my teeth on researching, on learning about New York City, um, and um, try to make a go at it as a writer, as a reporter. Um, you know, at the time, there weren't quite as many outlets. Uh, there wasn't the internet at the time yes. in the early 90s. And um, and um, and so I, I spent some time as a research director for a state senator here in Manhattan, uh, Franz Leichter, uh, who was a maverick and uh, didn't have a lot of power in Albany, uh, but he was known for publishing uh, investigative policy reports about key issues facing New York. And so for four years, I wrote those policy reports for him. And then in the mid-90s, the Center for an Urban Future was getting underway, and I was recruited to be the founding research director. Wow. And, um, and I was fortunate to have that opportunity, and, uh, and I've been the uh, executive director for uh, quite a while now. That's great. So I guess it goes without saying, since you've been there so long, that you really enjoy the work. I enjoy the work. I, I love this city. Uh, I love looking at ways to make it even better. I feel the same way, you know, with the New York City Hospitality Alliance. It's a nonprofit organization. And just being out there and knowing that your work is having or hoping to have a beneficial impact on the city as a whole and a direct impact just on, you know, people's lives is clearly a fulfilling type of career. So um, let's jump right into some of the reports. So the chain report. So there's a lot of different types of businesses in the city of New York. I know the mayor's office and I've heard others have said there's something like 220,000 small businesses in the five boroughs. A lot of people talk about the beloved mom and pop businesses, uh, you know, your local cafe, your hardware store. One of my neighborhood on the Upper West Side just shut down that has been beloved for I don't even know how many decades. And then there's the chains. Um and people have different feelings. I mean, I have nothing against chains. I think there's a lot of great chains out there. But even in Mayor de Blasio's recent press conference, you know, he had really made a clear distinction between the mom and pop businesses and the chains. I know many chains are not operated by corporate. They tend to be franchisees. Um, and they have a big impact on our city. So can you talk a little bit about just the evolution of your annual uh, chains report and just some of the interesting information that you've learned? 
Absolutely. Um, this is probably one of the, one of our more fun reports because we dive into some incredibly meaty policy topics. Um, but um, but every year we publish uh, what we call State of the Chains, and uh, it's been twelve years we've been doing it now, and we basically tally up all of the chain stores that we can identify in New York City, and we track how each of those uh, numbers change year over year. So we can tell you how many Dunkin' Donuts, how many Target, how many Home Depot, uh, you know, how many Starbucks, and, and on and on there are, not only citywide, but in each borough. So we're able to really see what the trends are, where we've seen increases, where there are decreases. And we did this um, about 12 years ago. We started this in part because there was a lot of concern about the mom and pop uh, retail business in New York City. And I think not a lot of people knew exactly what we should be doing. But as uh, the executive director of a research organization, we thought, hey, let's at least ground this debate about mom and pops in some facts, in some data about what we know uh, about chain stores, the explosion of chains. Everybody knew that there was a lot of chains in the city and they were making life tough. We just wanted to stand back and not necessarily do like kind of a, a report that, that was, you know, one sided or the other, but like, let's try to understand how many chains are there? How are they increasing? And, and, you know, for the first 10 years of our report, no matter what the economy in New York was doing, we saw an increase in chain stores. Um, and clearly, there was something to it. You know, um, we saw uh, chain stores uh, had succeeded, and so many then came behind, behind them. They saw that they could really make money in New York City, that there was a market, not just in Manhattan, but in the other boroughs. Um, and so there has been a notable increase in chains across the city. Uh, in recent, uh, the last six years or so, a lot of the increase had been happening outside of Manhattan. I think what's really interesting about our research is that in the last two years, things have changed a little bit. And it seems to us like that it's no longer just mom and pops that are struggling amid some of the kind of economic situations and circumstances in New York. But now chains are starting to have some of those issues. And specifically, we're finding that it is the merchandise chains that are struggling the most, that are shutting down stores uh, left and right, uh, stores selling clothing, selling accessories, shoes, um, perfume, jewelry. You know, these are the things, not surprisingly, that people are starting to order more and more online. Um, you're, no, you're not necessarily ordering food left and right online, maybe not yet, uh, but uh, but you are going to Zappos or Amazon or Macy's and ordering those kind of things online now. And it's affected storefront retail in the city. Um, obviously, mom and pops are struggling with those same issues around online retail. Um, but uh, but interestingly, um, chains are, are starting to, to see setbacks as well. That's interesting. Are there certain types of chains where you've seen the most aggressive growth until it started to plateau or decline? Well, I mean, in, in the last five years or so, I think food has been off the charts growth. Yes. Um, you know, we've always seen that New Yorkers must really like their coffee because uh, coffee stores in particular, um, you know, at first it was Starbucks and, uh, and Dunkin' Donuts. But I think because of the success of those, you know, so many other smaller boutique chains and other somewhat large ones like Tim Hortons came one, at one point. But so many other uh, coffee joints have really started and grown in New York City. I think there's something about those kind of smaller food or beverage chains because they don't require as much space uh, for every storefront. 
and um, and so you can be a little flexible. Uh, the overhead costs aren't quite as much for rent because they're fairly small, um, but uh, but they've been among the biggest gainers over the years. Um, but uh, but really, it's it's like what hasn't been growing when yes. it comes to chains. Yeah, you know. When it comes to coffee, I actually, a little bit later on, I want to talk about that when we discuss automation a little bit. Um, but it's interesting. We see it in the restaurant space where, you know, it's not fast food per se. It's the fast casual restaurant. So they're more of like a chef driven, you know, sourcing ingredients locally from upstate New York farmers. Um, but it's basically the brand new refresh version of what a fast food restaurant is. And there's been ex- really a lot of growth there and expansion and you see private equity and vc money getting behind them pushing them for this uh, you know growth and new yorkers love them i mean you go out walk down any block in manhattan during lunchtime and you see lines out the door for these new types of chains and it'll be interesting to see how long uh this trend lasts i think people love grain bowls with locally grown vegetables and stuff like that so I suspect we'll continue to see some sort of expansion and we'll also figure out how automation impacts or doesn't impact uh, the workforce in those types of businesses. Um, but when you do these reports, right, you look at uh, the state of change, for example. Are you looking at policy ideas? So, for example, if you see this segment of the chain industry is starting to shrink, would you suggest – a policy idea to help grow that sector? Well, in almost all of our reports, the answer is absolutely yes. We're, we're, we're a think tank that's really all about really seeding policies mm-hmm. and making sure we kind of are catalysts for change and for good, sustainable policies in New York City. I think that, um, you know, from the moment we started this change report, we were really trying to ground it in data. And there's so many nuances when it comes to chains. And in fact, kind of getting to your back to your original question a couple minutes ago, you know, uh, I've always been one that sees a lot of gray in, in the chain conversation out there. Absolutely. I think our data showed that there are some parts of, of the city, particularly in Manhattan, but some other parts of the city as well, where we've really reached or crossed a saturation point, you know. Um, you know, or a tipping point where there's really just too many chains in one place. And it stifled small businesses. It stifled some great independent retailers. And it's just not as interesting as it as it used to be. Um, but I think there are other parts of the city that would love to have more shopping choices. Yes. They'd love to have some of the chains that have been so standard in parts of Manhattan and other parts of the city. And I've heard from New Yorkers saying exactly that. And so I think it's a mixed picture. I'd also say that, you know, I run an organization that we've written so many things about the importance of small businesses over the years. And I'm such a believer in independent businesses and entrepreneurship. But I also don't think that every small business has a right to exist in perpetuity. Yes. You know, you know, I'm in the neighborhood where I live, you know, I'm glad that there are some, you know, small businesses that shut down, yeah. you know, they uh, better ones came in. Yes. You know, and so that kind of churn has been helpful, I think, for the vitality of the city. I think when we look at this into your more recent question, when we look at the chain picture now and we think about recommendations, what concerns me the most is just the vibrancy of retail period. Yes. You know, whether there's got to be some kind of mix, whether it's chains or independent businesses, I'd much prefer independent retailers. Um, but I think I'm starting to worry with some of the, uh, the, the trends we're seeing with e-commerce that 
we may see a lot of vacant storefronts in the city, um, and that, that is going to affect the vitality of our neighborhoods. Um, and so we've got to start start having those conversations. And maybe it's a good thing. Maybe um, we'll actually see rents come down to the place where independent businesses are able to afford these storefronts. I think that very likely could happen. But I think there's also a risk that, you know, we just could see a lot less retail, period. Yeah, listen, you're 100%. I mean, I think neighborhoods in particular, in particular really need a diverse retail mix. It's good for foot traffic on the street. I think it's just good for the character of a neighborhood. Um, so there's so many benefits to it. I always find it from like a public policy perspective interesting, and maybe it's because of some of the work we do at the Hospitality Alliance, is – as I mentioned before, how certain people talk um, about chains. So even though, um, you know, a lot of people talk about chains in different ways, the city council recently held a oversight hearing on several different bills that would further regulate fast food restaurants, which I believe are defined by companies with 30 or more similar establishments. So you think of the McDonald's and other fast food companies. So a lot of these regulations, particularly around labor, are targeted at chain businesses. Um, and then there's even criticism of some chains like a Starbucks, for instance, when they move into a neighborhood, they're like, oh, there's a Starbucks. But from what I understand with companies like Starbucks, they're paying higher than average wages. They're offering different types of benefits, whether it be insurance or I believe contributing to college funds and doing a lot of things that you would want, especially in a progressive city, businesses to do. So it's this somewhat double-edged sword of, you know, we don't want the chains, but the chains also do some good things. So it's a difficult and interesting conversation. I'm glad that you're writing about it, researching and helping inform the conversation in a more data-driven way rather than people just using their emotions. And so often when we talk about vacant storefronts or mom-and-pop businesses, it's driven by emotion. And like what you said, what kind of business should be sustained. Not every business, just because it's been around for a long time and maybe it's nostalgic for some people, should remain in perpetuity. Um, that being said, I think we need a fair and equitable regulatory re environment where small businesses have a chance because so often you hear from them that it's not just the online sales and the Amazons and these other factors, but it's the permitting and licensing process. It's the fines. It's the labor costs. And it's, you know, we say a death by a thousand cuts that's really harming the small business community. So I mentioned automation before. Um, was it Matt from your team a few years ago published a report on automation's impact on New York City's workforce? And he actually presented which was great, by the way, at one of our conferences. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me, it was some stat upwards of 80% of jobs in New York City's food service industry were subject to automation. It didn't mean that they were going to be automated, but they could. And he gave the example of a coffee shop, which you just mentioned, that there is technology that makes it easy to pour espresso shots and maybe make a cappuccino or a latte. So you'd think we'd have 
more automated coffee shops. But in fact, as you've said, over the years, we've actually seen a growth in coffee shops where actual human beings are the barista. So I was curious if you could just talk a little bit about automation. I know you've written some op-eds about it and what your view is about automation's impact on the workforce. Are you like Andrew Yang, where there's going to be no jobs left and we need to give everyone $1,000 a month? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, thanks so much for bringing this up because we've written about this because we think this is something that um, the people in New York, policymakers especially, ought to be thinking about and getting ahead of. Um, we're not necessarily where Andrew Yang on this but, uh, is, but we're glad that he's been talking about it and getting people to focus attention because it's coming down the pike. You know, um, you know, four years ago in the last presidential election, you know, we heard a lot of angst, uh, real angst and frustration about what happened over a long period with globalization, uh, particularly in Midwest and the factories. But now automation uh, is going to have similar effects, but but everywhere in cities like New York uh, and not just in factories and manufacturing uh, companies. It's going to impact software companies. It's going to impact restaurants and uh, and so many other parts of the economy. And uh, and I think we've been trying to just kind of provide some data on what we do see as as the kind of impacts that potentially could happen. And, you know, I think that, you know, we're not um, kind of shouting fire in, in, a, in a theater here. In fact, you know, our research suggests that there's a fairly small number of jobs that are going to go away from automation right away. 7,000 or so in New York City is what we put the figure at. But a lot more, around half a million, are highly vulnerable to automation and will be impacted in some way and, and probably to the extent that, um, you know, people working in those positions are going to require a greater degree of technological fluency. They're going to have to work with robots. They're going to have to work with software in a way that they aren't right now. And we've got to start making sure that the workforce is prepared. And so where we've come at this, it's not necessarily to say, oh, wow, there's robots. Cool. Or like the sky is falling. <laughs> it's really how do we get ahead of this and how do we prepare the workforce in New York for this automation that's coming? Uh, and we think oh, that entails upskilling the workforce, really investing in, in workforce, not just people that aren't in the workforce now, which is often where we focus on job training, but people that are already in jobs, how do we get them to buttress their skills uh, and upskill them for the, the challenges ahead? And also lifelong learning. People in all kinds of professions going forward are going to have to get that extra credential, that extra skill, and maybe partly at community colleges, maybe at at at, at, at uh, coding uh, academies or, or workforce training operations. Uh, but we've got to start having those discussions. And the food services sector is one of those areas that is most ripe for automation. A lot of times that we're seeing it, it's those kind of repetitive tasks uh, that uh, that are automatable, whereas more kind of human-to-human uh, -human things are probably going to survive. So, for instance, home health aides are probably going to survive to a great extent. Um, people in the front of house uh, at restaurants are probably going to be in relatively good shape. That kind of, you know, person-to-person -person contact is really valuable even in an automated economy. But a lot of people doing food prep, 
dishwasher um, and some of the back of the house things at restaurants are vulnerable. In fact, we found that seven of the 10 largest occupations with the highest automation potential are in the food service industry. Yeah, it's fascinating. We host with some partners an annual hospitality technology conference and Part of the discussion always is, you know, robotics and AI and how is it going to impact the industry and how in the hospitality industry, which is human contact, you know, people go in to eat at a restaurant or go to a bar and sit down. It's kind of like cheers. You know, it's that human conversation, that human touch, that experience that people really crave and how is in the long run automation robotics, different types of technology going to change the industry. And I think we've seen it certainly in some more fast, casual chain restaurants. They may be more vulnerable to technology, even in the front of the house, because someone wants to go up to a kiosk and just, you know, boom, boom, they put their order in. Or we see so much mobile technology and investment in that segment to make people even be able to order food from their table. Um, I wrote a column about a year or two ago in Forbes titled The uh, Rise of the Restaurant Robot. And I looked at a whole bunch of different types of restaurants and bars and how they were utilizing technology. And it was early on, but one of the companies that I referenced was a company by the name of Bear Robotics. And what they have is a little machine. I don't want to say it looks like R2-D2, but basically it comes out and it has a tray on top with your food and it can navigate through the restaurant and run the food to you. And then I just saw about a couple of months ago, uh, SoftBank just led a $32 million round to, you know, grow them, get this robot into more restaurants. And it'll be interesting to see if it's just something that works in certain types of restaurants, you know, and it's something like, oh, that's cute. That's fun. Or if it's something where, the public is just going to get accustomed to a robot running the food. They're going to get accustomed to walking into a restaurant, placing an order on a iPad, then sitting down at the table and having a robot bring it out. I suspect and I hope that we're able to keep the human touch. I also question the new generation, the younger generation that's really growing up with technology everywhere. They perhaps seem like they may prefer ordering on an app or ordering on a screen versus having that human interaction. And we've seen it particularly in San Francisco. There's some what historically were fine dining, full service restaurants. And they started this new segment called fine uh, casual or something like that, where you walk in and the restaurant's beautiful. It looks like a really high end restaurant from the design and the aesthetics. But then you walk up to a counter, you place your order, often on a touchscreen, and then a human still runs out the food. And in some of the places, you can actually order your next cocktail from a screen and someone runs it out. So we're seeing these hybrid restaurants. Um, obviously, they're not so mainstream, but in cities like New York, like San Francisco, where the cost to operate is so high, where the pressures to innovate uh, are so high, perhaps they are more incentivized to experiment with these more technologically savvy restaurants. So I don't know if we have Kevin Takarada from Maki Maki on the line. 
Buzz, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. It's Andrew Ridgey at the Hospitality and Politics Show. How are you? Good. How are you, Andrew? Doing well. And I'm here with my guest, Jonathan Bowles from Center for an Urban Future. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Good. So this is amazing. So I have to say, this is the first time on Hospitality and Politics we're having someone call in using technology while we're talking about technology, and it seems like it's working, huh? Thank God for technology. Exactly. So by the way, I don't know if I was doing market research or what, but I went to Maki Maki right on 6th Avenue between 55th and 56th Street this afternoon. I had spicy tuna and spicy salmon roll. I didn't get the spicy scallop hand roll, which I usually do, but, uh, you know, did my market research and it was delicious. Thank you. So listen, so Jonathan is organization center for an urban future has put out different reports on how automation is impacting the workforce in the city of New York. You and Maki Maki have been doing a lot with robotics and we've been saying the restaurant industry is in a weird place. There's more restaurants that are catching up when it comes to the types of tech stacks that they're using, you know, getting more advanced. Then there's some restaurants where there's just no technology, but I know you're a leader on there. We've been on panels together. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of robotics you're using and how it's impact, you know, your company? Sure. So uh, from the beginning, um, Maki Maki has been about uh, auto, uh, streamlining the processes of making sushi rolls, whether it's uh, making rice, um, uh, utilizing machines to help the process and the procedures of putting rice down onto the seaweed and even cutting the sushi rolls. Uh, we're utilizing as much technologies as possible to be able to keep up with the demand that we have seen from the customer bases that, that are out there. Um, I think for, for me, it's a little bit special simply because um, there hasn't been a player like me where, you know, from the beginning, we've all, all been about automation. There's a lot of restaurants that are trying to incorporate robotics as they go along as they as they uh, mature, but from us, from the beginning, the very, very beginning, we were all about automation. Did you have an issue being able to keep up with the demand with humans that you really needed to introduce robotics, or was it just something that you wanted to do? Well, for me, it, I have a very different mindset. I, I believe that if a process or a job is easier, then uh, the the staff that works for the the restaurant is going to become happier because their job becomes more simplified. And if they're happier and they're getting paid well, then the turnover of staff is going to be lower. Therefore, from a management perspective, it becomes easier for us to manage the business because you don't have to go through a constant uh, training program. Got it. So what about jobs? Has the introduction of robotics reduced jobs? I know that you kind of opened up with robotics, but have you seen a reduction in the number of people that you would have employed otherwise? How has it impacted just the number of people you uh, have working? Right. Very, very good question. Uh, but as I mentioned before, I started from the beginning uh, coming up utilizing robots from the very, very beginning. So it's not really necessarily applicable to me. However, um, I was I just came back from Miami. I, I have a, a family business down in Miami Beach, Florida, and we've been in operation for 32 years. And I was there, and we realized that uh, the staff, the labor, isn't really being able to 
isn't able to manage the consistency and quality that we're expecting from them. And robotics is something that we're actually exploring to see if that can improve the process, speed, turnaround, and and at the end of the day, uh, make our customers even happier. Um, And is that going to really impact jobs? No, because what that allows us to do is it allows us to take redundant and uh, repetitive tasks and say, hey, we have robots that will take care of it. Why don't you focus on more important things that are more uh, quality and hands-on intensive, like uh, preparing fish, looking at the quality of the fish, really going out and focusing on the quality of the stuff that the robots can't do. But like stuff like um, uh, measuring rice, washing rice, and, and cooking rice, and mixing rice with vinegar, that can be automated with a single button. If that can be done, then Again, that takes away 45 to 45 minutes to an hour of someone's job, and they will be able to go out and do something else with that time. So it doesn't completely eliminate jobs. It makes jobs easier. Jonathan and I were talking about the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, that it's a people business. And sometimes if you use too much technology, you're taking away that human element, which I think a lot of consumers like, especially in the restaurant and the hospitality industry. So because you are freeing up uh, your employees' time, are you redirecting that to any type of consumer, customer-focused efforts? Yes. So that by taking away, uh, my, by streamlining operations and making it very, very simple, um, we're able to focus our time on customer service skills. And that's the aspect of business that uh, is very much lacking in New York City across the board. You know, if you go to any other uh, fast casuals or I guess um, uh, fast food restaurants, you, you notice the, the lack of customer service. Got it. Um, we, if you looked at all of our reviews on Yelp, whether it's po- whether it's positive or negative, everyone does agree that our customer service is very top notch, and it's because because everyone is so happy working here because the job becomes so much easier. They're able to project that that happiness to our customers. So it's a very good cycle. So before we let you go, question for you on. The industry as a whole, you mentioned you're one of the few restaurants now that have implemented robotics. What do you think robotics means for the industry as a whole? I mean, over the next three years, five years, 10 years, do you think robotics are going to become standard in most restaurants? Or do you think it's still going to be a handful of restaurants that just are into robotics? I Definitely, the industry is going to move towards robotics we have robots are basically going to replace the tasks that people don't want to do. You know, it's not going to go out and say, you know, cut uh, from a sushi perspective, it's not going to go ahead and start uh, cutting the fish in the, the way that we want to No, It's what it's going to be able to do is it's going to be able to take certain parts of one person's job and automate it. Right. So then they will be able to focus on other things. And that makes the, the labor force a lot more efficient. Um, I see it in, in Japan. Whenever you go to Japan and you go to some of the restaurants, they're incorporating very, very interesting robotics that are very specific to their particular restaurant. And I think they've got, gone in, and these are uh, big chain restaurants uh, that have robotics behind them. I think down the road, of course, there's going to be robotics that are going to take over certain aspects of a job, but it's not going to do 
everything from A to Z. There is still going to be a human element that's going to be necessary. And if it becomes all robots, then I think then I think that's when the customers become very much um, uh, have a have a very stale as- uh, view onto the restaurant. Make it they'll feel like that it's not really a restaurant, but it's really more of a too much of a factory. Got it, Kevin Takarada from Maki Maki Sushi. I hope to see you at the restaurant when I am there next time and even check out some of the robotics. Appreciate you coming on the show, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, there you go, Jonathan. A conversation with an actual restaurateur that's using robotics. Any initial thoughts about what he had to say? Yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with a restaurant like uh, Kevin's to, to, to use automation. I think uh, one thing a lot of folks don't understand is how thin the profit margins are for restaurants in the city. Uh, restaurants are so important in so many ways for New York. And as an aside, let me tell you that we look a lot at New York City's economy, and there are n- there are, uh, restaurants may be the the single biggest engine of growth over the last uh, decade or so for New York City. Um, I looked it up before I came here, and restaurants in New York City added 118,000 jobs in the last decade, and uh, and in the last 20 years, the number of jobs in the restaurant sector basically doubled, 100% growth. Um, so a lot of people are working in restaurants, and, and it's important for New York's economy. I do think that um, that what we're going to see is that uh, I think Kevin's probably right, and he certainly knows this more than I do, that that it's going to change jobs. You know, people are going to be able to focus on other things. They're probably going to have to also have fluency with technology to be able to work with the robotic systems yes. in ways that they aren't. Um, but I guess my concern is that, you know, restaurants, just like retail and what we were talking about before um, th- with e-commerce, that – you know, there, these are there's a lot of accessible jobs in the restaurant and retail sectors. Uh, people that um, that don't have a college degree often use this as an entry point, and that's important. Um, and as we go into using robotics, we may see less people hired. It may not be that it may be that Kevin isn't necessarily laying off people as he's using the system, but. Whereas maybe five years ago, uh, a company like his, a restaurant, may have hired two people to cut the sushi or put the rice down. They're no longer – they're not yes. doing that. You know, it's the same exactly. thing when I, when I talk about automation. The easiest example is often for me um, looking at the automated tellers that you now see it just in the last few years – at the CVS's, Dwayne Reed's, at, at Target's in the city. Um, you know, also when you order at a McDonald's, uh, you go in and order from a kiosk. Um, and, uh, like, like, you know, the experience you were talking about that actually a human will bring you, uh, will give you the, the, the tray with your food at McDonald's, but you'll order from a kiosk. And so there are fewer people that McDonald's is probably hiring. Uh, to do the cashier service, and that's an accessible job. And so, you know, um, in every re- technological revolution we've had going back, you know, dozens and dozens of years, there's often a net gain in jobs where some people lose jobs or some jobs are, are, are kind of, you know, kind of zeroed out. More are created in other areas. And I think that may very well be what's happening with automation, but it may end up being a lot of higher end jobs that require 
college credentials, require specific sets of skills, uh, require technological fluency. And there's a lot of New Yorkers working in the back of restaurants or as cashiers at retail operations that aren't necessarily going to plug into the new things that are being yeah. created. Yeah. Listen, New York City is a foodie city. People have small kitchens. They're running around constantly. They socialize in restaurants and bars. We're going to talk about tourism, which I think has a huge influence on restaurants here in the city as well. And it's really accelerated the growth of number of establishments as well as the number of people that these restaurants employ. We recently have looked at some of the data for full-service New York City restaurants. And the past two years, we've actually seen a decline after, you know, decades plus of growth. And I won't get into now, but I think there's a lot of regulatory pressures, perhaps with some market pressures as well that are leading to that actual loss of jobs. But I think you're spot on. The types of jobs are going to change, which is a little bit alarming to me because if you look at the restaurant industry, you mentioned the demographics of who's working. You know, I say it's for people of all walks of life. You know, you can come to the city. You don't even have to speak English. You can find a job in the restaurant industry. When you speak to most restaurant owners or executive chefs or people in a management position, they started off as a dishwasher. You know, culturally, everyone relates to food that they grew up with and they're attracted to this industry. And because it allows for people of all walks of life, formerly incarcerated, you name it, if those entry-level positions are eliminated – or start changing where you need a higher degree of education or specific training, um, what are we going to do with all of these people coming to New York City that are looking for work? And how is the city of New York going to address this? And I think your research is so important because you have policymakers now thinking about what are we going to do in the future? And we really need to be proactive because if we start getting reactive, it's going to be too late. Technology, especially these days, is advancing just so quickly. And the advances are only going to happen faster and faster. So we really need to have that conversation. Absolutely. And and a lot of it is really about skills and, and education, because even in these kind of entry level positions, as you're talking about it, we're seeing more and more they're going to have to have a higher degree of skills. They're going to have to have some technological fluency. They're going to have to be able to work with a robotic system or something. And so, you know, we've got to be making those investments. I just read an article and it's killing me because I can't remember where it was, but they were talking about, you mentioned pharmacies or places like Target where they have this self-checkout. And one of the issues had been theft because people you know, swipe the item and it doesn't scan properly. So they get annoyed. So they just toss it in their bag or people purposely can go into a store and, you know, take something. So they started um, disabling the little weight scales that they put on these self-service checkout uh, units. And to address theft, they've had to train their employees. But one of the things the article mentioned is now they're going to start using AI and other types of technology to basically use different algorithms to determine, you know, what kind of products are, you know, being taken frequently. So if something's removed from a shelf and then all of a sudden, you know, they're going up to the register and within a specific time frame, you know, someone hasn't rung it up 
it would be alerted somehow. I mean, really very sophisticated, you know, AI and other types of tech that, again, will be more successful theoretically at preventing theft than an actual human. At some point, someone will probably have to run those machines. They'll have to monitor them. But instead of just having the security guard that gets certified by the state, you're going to have to some have someone that is trained to understand all of this technology and then act upon whatever it tells you. So that's changing. Last thing I want to get to is tourism. Because as we said, New York City, and I'm sure you have some numbers, the number of people from around the world that are coming here every year. Um, for us, we love it because they're going and eating in our restaurants, drinking at our bars. But can you talk a little bit about the overall economic impact of tourism on our city? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, we, we've studied all different aspects of the city's economy over the year, as I mentioned earlier. And, um, and I think a lot of times people forget about tourism or they take it for granted, um, or they poo poo the jobs that, that are in tourism as a somehow lower or less important. Um, but, um, but what we've seen is that just as the number of tourists in New York City over the last 20 years has more than doubled. That come every year from about 30 million a year uh, 20 years ago to close to 70 million a year today um, that, uh, you know, we all kind of in New Yorkers, we see them on the street and sometimes it frustrates us that there's a group that, you know, here or there. Um, but that has translated into a ton of jobs. Um, we, it has really made tourism one of the four or five driver engines of New York City's economy. You know, it's right up there with finance and with other key industries of, of New York City. It, it used to be important and, and now it's one of the key drivers of our economy. And we found that there's about 291,000 jobs in New York City associated with tourism. Uh, to put that in perspective, in finance, there's about 200 68,000. So, you know, this is, uh, like you said, people are, are going to restaurants, uh, they're going to retail. Uh, and interestingly, we actually interviewed a lot of uh, restaurants and retailers, uh, business owners, that, as we did this study, and found a lot of them said that, you know, if not for tourists, they may not be in business anymore, because of the low profit margins, because of the new e commerce pressures, um, you know, like a department store like Macy's, you know, um, they, uh, department stores are really hurting, not just in New York City, but around the country, uh, because people are shopping online. They're shopping at Macy's online. Wow. Um, not to mention Amazon and other places. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, Macy's, you know, if, if not for those tourists, um, you know, they would be in a much different place. Well, you know, people often talk about it with us when it comes to different policy issues related to the restaurant industry. And I say, I think this year we had something like 65 million plus tourists coming to New York City. I said, just imagine if it went from 65 to 40 million, a drop of 25 million. I mean, 40 million tourists is still an enormous number, but imagine the loss of those people and the impact on these small businesses like restaurants, like the department stores, like the local shops that have really grown to rely on those people. And of course, if those businesses rely on those tourists, then the people working for those businesses uh, rely on those tourists as well. So we really are really interconnected. 
You know, and I want to say that um, uh, because, again, I I think we often think at at the Center for an Urban Future about um, people from lower income backgrounds and how to expand economic opportunity. And, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of solid research about this. But as the city's unemployment rate has plunged below 4 percent, you know, a lot of that is due to restaurants, retail, um, hospitality. Um, Not all of those jobs are really great paying jobs. There's a lot of low wage jobs in restaurants and retail. Um, and, And I think that New York, like a lot of other cities, is really struggling with where are the middle class jobs of the future. And we've been really wrestling with that ourselves. But I do think that all of this job creation, even at the lower ends, has made a real difference in poverty reduction in this city. I think it's gotten people in that first rung of the labor market that they may not have before. Um, and, and I think that's really valuable. And I think we need to be really making sure that we don't slide back to 40 million yes. tourists a year uh, because – you know, it's going to impact some of these entry level jobs and positions. Do we need to be creating more better jobs? Absolutely. Do we need to have pathways for some of these hospitality jobs? Yes. Um, but we need to we need to understand that this has become a real solid driver of the city's economy today. And we've got to support it. I'm so with you on that. Um, lastly, I know some years back you actually did some research and I think put out a report on uh, low income entrepreneurs and perhaps opportunities and barriers. And I think you're doing some town halls coming up in the future um, based on that research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, we're, we're just embarking on a five-borough forum series. Um, it's going to uh, launch at an event we're having on March 10th in Manhattan. And, um, you know, I think that we've really looked at this idea of how do we expand low-income entrepreneurship right now? You know, we're in an economy where there aren't as many middle income jobs that are accessible to people without a college degree. It used to be that you can get a job at a manufacturing plant. There were lots of those jobs. And even if you didn't have a college degree, you could climb up the ladder and get a good middle class life in New York City. There are fewer, a lot fewer of those opportunities today. And so first, we need to be making sure people get the education and training to get the, where, where we are. We do have good jobs. But secondly, we think maybe we should be looking at entrepreneurship as an option for some people from lower income backgrounds. It's not going to be for everybody. And and God knows there are incredible hurdles to being an entrepreneur and it's not for everyone. But we think we can move the needle and really promote and support more people from lower income backgrounds to start on uh, entrepreneurship, to start a business as a pathway to economic security as a way of just putting food on the table. It doesn't have to be the next Google, but um, but a lot of those kind of entrepreneurs just to support themselves and their family. Maybe some will be growth businesses and end up employing a lot of New Yorkers. Uh, but right now, there are fairly low levels of self-employment and entrepreneurship among lower-income communities, particularly non-immigrant lower-income communities. And we're just trying to understand how do we change that? How do we make sure, promote, and support uh, folks to start a business. I think it's critically important. I know so many people that go into the restaurant industry for one reason or another, and they really find a passion for it. And as we've seen the industry evolve, you know, there's social media departments, human resource departments, marketing, catering, and there are these opportunities to go from an entry level, more low wage job into a 
middle class job. Hopefully, the cost to, to live in New York City continues to grow. Uh, so that's a whole other issue about how do you thread that needle and balance getting people to earn more, but also keeping housing and affordability at a level where those people can still live in our city. Um, one of the sayings, and I don't know where it originated from, but that I always say is, you know, don't talk about it, be about it. And one of the things the Hospitality Alliance this year that we're really focused on is not being reactive. We'll always have to react to issues, but we really need to be proactive. We recently released our 20 policy ideas for 2020, which is a roadmap of regulatory reforms or systems and policies that could be implemented that could help small business owners succeed in our city. So when you're putting out all of these excellent reports, whether it's tourism, whether it's uh, automation's impact on the workforce or this uh, low income entrepreneur program, these town halls, do you have a message for policy people or just New Yorkers as in general? Like, what should we be doing to make sure that we are prepared to not only address, but really go full steam into addressing the challenges that lay ahead and seizing the opportunities. Yeah, well, well, first of all, we've got a lot of great studies, as you said. If anybody wants to check them out, it's at nycfuture.org is our website. But, um, you know, I think that... um, I think that not enough of our policymakers or the broader public are really um, kind of understanding the, the the really daunting mix of trends and challenges that that we're up against today. You know, automation is just one thing. We've got uh, a real changing economy. Uh, there's really are not that many middle class jobs right now. Uh, a, a college degree is more important than ever. Yet we've got 3.7 million adults in New York City that don't have a college wow. degree, um, and obviously that leads to other issues. There's a lot of frustration with things like Amazon because a lot of people feel like they had no shot of getting a job like that. You know, I understand that, but we've got to be investing in education and training and and programs that give people pipelines into those new jobs where the economy is growing. We've got to get ahead of automation and some of the skills challenges that we talked about today. Um, But, um, you know, I think it's really um, just uh, being better aware of of what there is and, and, and not waiting for a pie in the sky solution but but like like you said doing something about it i don't have a gong but if i did i'd go gong please <laughs> policymakers listen to jonathan bowles please read the reports that have been put out by the center for an urban future they're incredibly insightful they often have some really meaty policy ideas and we need to not only be reactive we need to be proactive we can't just talk about it we need to be about it so jonathan bowles executive director of center for an urban future i want to thank you for coming on the show and if people want to find you online can you give the website one more time and any social media channels uh, website is nycfuture.org, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at NYCFuture. Thank you for listening to Hospitality and Politics. As always, it is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. If you like the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. Tell everyone about it. Share us on social media. As I said earlier, the Alliance is at the NYC Alliance on Twitter and on Instagram. 
Search New York City Hospitality Alliance if you're on Facebook and LinkedIn, which I think most people are. And you can find me, Andrew Ridgey, at Andrew Ridgey on Twitter or Political Foodie NYC on Instagram. We at the New York City Hospitality Alliance are constantly fighting for you in the halls of government, making sure that restaurant, bar, nightclub owners have an organization that is speaking to them, serving them, and helping them hopefully be very successful in keeping New York City the restaurant capital of the world, as well as the city that never sleeps. Thank you, everyone, and we will talk to you next time.